Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are honored to welcome Amy Norhues to our show. Amy is a survivor of emotional, spiritual, and sexual abuse at the hands of her psychiatrist, who was also a highly respected elder at her church. She is here today to share with you her journey. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm very excited for you to come. I read your book, which we will talk about. I found it to be absolutely powerful. So let's uh, dive right in. Okay. So you come from a family, there are four children in your family. Is that right? Yes. And I was you, oldest of four girls. Oldest of four girls. Oh my goodness. And you actually were abused for the first time at age three. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And then you were also sexually abused later on too by the priest for your family. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So you had already been through the ringer before any of this ever happened that we're really even here to talk about. Yeah. And you know, it kept happening in my life. I just like, I had a target on my back. I just kept being taken advantage of in different situations. And every time I would just freeze and I would think something has got to be wrong with you. You know, I don't think that's something that's well known. And it's absolutely true that once you've been abused once, you're much more likely to be abused again. And so I think a lot of people are like, there's no way, but that is exactly what happens. And I know in my work, I sure have seen it over and over and over. It didn't, it does feel that way. Like once somebody has been abused, it's just like, oh my gosh, how does this person come into contact with people? But it does, it happens over and over and over again. And, you know, as we talked about in here a lot, the, the, that abuse, especially when it's not addressed or attended to when you're still a child, it leads to all kinds of different problems as an adult and certainly problems of how you feel about yourself. Is that kind of how things transpired for you? Oh yeah. I had so much self-hatred and I just thought fix whatever is wrong with you. So you can be like other people. You know, I was just so hard on myself and, you know, even just my emotions, if I had strong emotions towards something, it was like normal people aren't that emotional, like get over it. It was just like, I couldn't win, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you told this really vivid story about getting into trouble at school when you're a little girl and the the teacher made you go sit in the trash can and, and then how that made you feel. And I was like, oh my God, that is poignant. I can't believe that, that she did that. I know. Like I'm, it's horrifying, but that's, that's kind of the, and a good example is that when it happened to me, I thought it was bad, but not that bad. Mm -hmm. But if I'm looking at somebody else, I'm just like, I would just go to bat for that child, you know, and yell at that teacher, but I couldn't do that for myself. That is such a common theme with survivors. I've had this conversation a bazillion times where people are like, well, it wasn't that bad. And then you're like, okay, well, if that happened to your child or your sister or your niece, what would you do? And they're like, oh, I would lose my mind. I know. I know. So I'm guessing that that is kind of the avenue that led you into therapy. You're wanting to address these things. And I think, like you said before, be a normal person, whatever that is. And so you started therapy. 
Yeah, and just lingering depression for for these issues. And really, I think it was my self-hatred that was causing a lot of this depression. But I had lost my sister like in 2010 and, and just I wanted to work on my marriage. I wanted to work on my parenting. And of course, I thought I was a disaster as a parent, you know, so I was always part mm-hmm. of myself there, too. So I well, and I started Celebrate Recovery in 2012. And, and what's that? It is a 12 step Christian 12 step program for hurts, habits and hang ups. So it can be addiction. It can be anything, you know, um, relationship issues, depression, whatever. But in that process, that's when I kind of, my faith strengthened and I started to heal and I started to learn how to do close relationships. And I started to, my anger towards God started to lessen. And so it was sort of like this new start for me. So I was in this kind of excited, naive place. And I started to attend the church that hosted the Celebrate Recovery and fell in love with it. And so when this therapist was recommended to me, I found out he was an elder at this new church. So I was really excited. And then I learned he was also a psychiatrist. So I thought, awesome. He can manage my medication. He does therapy. He's a Christian mentor. This is like the best of, you know, all these worlds. Yeah. Felt like divine intervention. It did. You know, I was in this naive place where, oh, it's a God thing. This has to be a God thing. Cause I was seeing everything through that lens. And, you know, it was even random the way the appointment came to be because a friend offers me her appointment. I don't even make it. And like literally drives me to the appointment and kind of drops me off. Like I'm like a, a homeless child or something. And he takes me right then. So I feel like extra indebted to him. Like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. And he just took me like on a whim like that. And I had friends that were on a waiting list to get in to see him. So I start out the relationship feeling kind of indebted. And so the power balance is really already skewed from the get go. When you, so when you started therapy, did you link any of the things you wanted to work on back to the abuse you had suffered as a child? Did you have any, because a lot of people don't know it yet. And some people do that. A lot of these issues are ongoing because of that unresolved trauma in their childhood. I think I was at a place where I expected so much for myself that I thought everybody has struggles. Everybody has issues. What is wrong with you that you can't get over them? So yes, I did link them, but I kind of put all the blame on myself. Like, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. I think it's what everybody, it's the, it's the knee jerk reaction. I think it's the human reaction. Everyone that's the first thing you do is what did I do wrong? how can I make myself better? So I don't do this again. So when you first started, I mean, he, and of course you don't know at the time, but hindsight's 2020 and you do a great job in your book of describing it all. He pretty much started grooming you from the get-go. Yes. Well, I, um, I had no idea. No, well, no one knows. Nobody has any idea what it was. There was a, a, po- a point in the book, something you said that I thought was really powerful that you didn't think you were worth caring about and you were very self-aware about it, but he clearly knew it too. And he exploited that. So you thought that you were just falling back into old patterns where you just didn't feel like you deserved this kind of special treatment, but really what he was doing was inappropriate and exploiting your vulnerabilities. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was trying to go the extra mile to show me that I had worth, you know, when he stopped charging me for sessions, I thought he was trying to show me that, that, he, that it hurt him, that I was made to feel like a financial liability when I was a child, that I, that I had that sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he used my weaknesses and my voids and my experiences 
back on me. So it was hard to tell what was me and what was him. You know, everything he did, I thought, well, is he just trying to show me this? Or is this something, did I say something in therapy and he's trying to make, you know, this is a therapeutic exercise, if that makes sense. I hate to say, to use this word, but he was a masterful manipulator. Like he really was really, really good at it. And I guess it's a surprise. Somebody who is schooled in psychiatry would certainly know exactly how to manipulate a person. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about some of those grooming techniques that he used? And again, of course, at the time, you didn't know it, but now looking back, you know, hindsight's 2020. Yeah. You know, on day one, when I, when I came in for that first appointment, he like went to his cupboard and, and there was a stack of Afghans there. And he kind of looked at what colors they were and what I was wearing and in a real goofy, he's, he was kind of a grandfatherly type and a very weird character, but sort of in a playful, goofy way, he tried to pick one that matched what I was wearing and then covered me up with it. Well, an ethical therapist will never do this, but you know, he did it in such kind of a joking manner that I thought, well, he's just trying to lighten the mood because you're nervous. It's your first session and you know, just relax, chill out. It's not a big deal. I realized now that was how he um, initially got into my personal space. Mm -hmm. And, but then so fast forward, there were things he did like um, much farther down the road. He just took off his shoes. And I was like, he wears a full suit and tie. And I just, I was so thrown by that. I was so panicked, but then my brain was like, it's shoes. Like Amy, like calm down. I mean, what is actually happening to you? Like you are so overreactive, just Mm -hmm. chill out. And then, you know, I decide like, well, I mean, why does he need to wear his shoes? Like we're more father, daughter, he, you know, he, I know I'm really well by now we're in it. We're sitting in chairs talking like, and then I was like, Oh, can I take off my shoes? Like it was some, you know, big, and then I did. And then it was like, no big deal. And then it was like, well, he's more comfortable with me. He doesn't have to be so formal with me. And I kind of like that. And, um, oh, there was eventually there was special candy that was just for me, always offering the ottoman for my feet. And, you know, for so long, I was so uncomfortable being in counseling it's such an awkward feeling being in counseling because you're trying to open up. And at the same time, you just feel like somebody is like stare boring into you and you're trying to keep yourself protected and you have no way to protect yourself. Um, and I would always turn down that ottoman. I'm like, why would I want to put, I mean, I'm not at the movie theater, you know? Right. And then, and I realized now that was a huge part of it. I mean, it was probably six, eight months down the road that I finally could put my feet up on the ottoman. I could take my shoes off and relax a little bit. And that was, you know, he was going to eventually use that to put his feet on the ottoman to touch feet with mine. And that was going to be how he initiates touch. And every time something would happen that would feel so frightening and awkward, I would think he touched your foot. Like, I mean, you know, I would just sort of like attack myself with like, come on. Yeah. And like, you're, you've got to work on your fears. Like you're, you're really anxious type thing. Um, and then, then what kicks in is, oh, I love that. I'm special. I love that. Like, he probably likes doing therapy with me. And, and I love that he can just be more relaxed with me. Then towards the very end, I had mentioned, again, this is an example of him using what I had said against me. I had said, I imagined da- myself dancing with Jesus, like a father daughter dance. And the reason I say that is because the entire therapy revolved around Jesus, the Holy spirit, evil spirits, all of this little crazy spiritual stuff. <laughs> And I'm just going to say, but, you know, I didn't want to criticize that either because I was like, am I having real spiritual experiences? Like, I don't mean to criticize God. Like, is he kind of crazy or is this real? I just never knew. But so then he offers to dance with me. I'm scared to death. 
And, you know, I think the only thing that motivated me to get up and make myself do it was because it was so awkward. The silence in the room was just deafening. And I was like, just, just do something like, and, you know, no, never felt like a choice. Mm -hmm. I don't know why no, never felt like an option. I think I thought he's doing this. You're the one that brought this up and then he's doing it to be therapeutic. And if you would just get through your fear, it's going to bring you healing. Like, you don't need to be so afraid. Like this is God's giving you this. I really, truly felt that God was giving me an example of safe, nurturing male interaction. So, and since I would never be attracted to this person in a trillion years, it just never even dawned on me that would be on his radar. So I thought that these were things that I should be comfortable with and I should be okay with. No, not in the real world, but we were in a therapy setting and he was just trying to show me. And I thought that it would truly benefit me and bring me some healing if I if I did these things. And I said to him after that first time, I mean, it was so brutally uncomfortable, I'll be honest. Um, the next time I came back, I said, I want to try dancing with you a thousand times until it doesn't terrify me. Mm-hmm. So I was doing it thinking that I, was gaining, I, mean, well, I thought I was gaining some healing. And I know it sounds yeah. weird to people, but when you have such a father void, that is something you are looking to heal. And anyway, so those are just a he few. Knew that. And he knew exactly that. And that's why he employed those specific techniques. Yeah. And he said, you know, he was loving me for Jesus. He was standing in for Jesus. And to a point, I believe that I believe, oh, God's blessing you with this safe, nurturing male. So Mm -hmm. you can see so that you can receive what you never have received and see, you know, what it's just, it's so sad that people are that evil that they can use that. They can do that to other human beings. But Yes. And I think it's important to note that this was over the course of months. It wasn't like you'd seen him two sessions and this started happening. It was months and months and he, it was like little incremental escalations yeah. so that yeah. it alarmed you, but it wasn't too fast, too soon to send your running away. Yeah. And I didn't link them. So I didn't link one to the next. So mm-hmm. each one was isolated. And by the time there would be a bigger one, I was more attached. Um, I was more comfortable. I you know, and they wait until you're attached enough Mm -hmm. that even if you are a little scared, you don't want to lose the support and the, the bond. So you're willing to let a few things slide. So like it, it got to a point where your appointments went from one hour to like two, three, even four hours long. And he was no longer charging you. Yeah. It, the appointments, like one day he just said, Oh, I, I was able to get us an extra hour and it was like an an unsettling feeling in my stomach. Kind of like, I don't know. I just felt kind of icky, but I was like, Oh, and then in time I was like, Oh, okay. Yay. You know, and I probably need it. And, and I mean, it was such being there, it was like, um, you know, giving someone a taste of a drug. It was just Mm -hmm. feeling heard and accepted and loved and supportive and nothing bad was happening. I didn't think. And so it was a wonderful, um, two hours for me to have that in my life where I didn't feel very connected, um, anywhere else. And I didn't really, I wasn't really getting that kind of emotional support anywhere else, but yes, um, after the first of the year, my insurance wasn't paying. And I went to the secretary and told her and she fumbled over her words. And I saw the doctor smile in the background. And I was like, okay, he's, this is supposed to just be to show me that it's okay. Like I'm worth it. It was very awkward, but in time I thought my literally in my head, I was like, I don't think you'll bankrupt him. Like get over it. Like it's like, you know, like just move on. And, and, and the insurance kicked in a few months down the road, but yes, the, the appointments eventually morphed into three hours. 
and there was one that it was for, and it was horrifying to me. And I said to him, what does your secretary think of me? Like, Mm -hmm. and he said something like, oh, well, she knows I, I only see the very most wounded. And I thought, man, I didn't know I was that bad off, you know, um, that only happened one time, but the sessions did stay three hours. And then at the very, very end, like the last month, it was twice a week for three hours. Wow. And when I learned of other, I learned of another victim afterwards and her sessions were three hours twice a week. Um, I, when I was reading through that part and, um, reading how the other victims started, well, first of all, when I read this, I was like, there's no way you're the only one. I know that anybody who knows us, who does this kind of work knows. And, and for victims a lot of time, they do think they're all alone and that it's just them. And it very, very, very rarely, if ever is. And I thought it was really cool that you were able to speak to other, one of the other women who he had done this to. And I was just shocked when she disclosed to you that it had happened to her for 16 years. Yeah. 17, actually 17. Oh my gosh. I was just like, Holy Moses. I that's you said, I said, thank you. I'm just forever indebted to you that you, that you stood up for me when she was hearing gossip in the church about this. And she said, I will be forever indebted to you for saving me, for getting me out. Like she couldn't leave. She was forever trapped there. And people do not get it. They don't understand that hold they have on you. But some of the things he said, like he said that he adopted you. Oh, he, yeah. he, oh, and he told you that you had multiple personalities and made you name them. Yes, we all had multiple. Everyone who was taking advantage of had multiple personalities. I mean, I've never known anyone in my life to have this. And, you know, I knew I didn't have that disorder. However, he put it more on a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. And if you can have it and not know it, then we'll, then we all could have it. So I just kind of, honestly, that was a huge, the hugest pill I had to swallow. And it was like, Amy, you've tried everything and you, you cannot beat this depression. And I know this is weird, but why don't you just give it a chance? Do you have any other options? You know, again, it was that self-hatred, like you, you have not fixed it. So who are you to cri- criticize this weird approach? Just try it. So, you know, once I got over that initial embarrassment about that, really, it was just seemed like normal therapy because it was just, to me, it was just imagine myself at a certain age where there was trauma, you know, what did I look like and invite Jesus into that space. And the weird part also was to pray away any evil spirits that were there. Now that was weird, but I heard about evil spirits all the time growing up. And I thought that very well might be why I can't beat this depression. So I was open to that idea, but anyway, so once I swallowed the idea of the diagnosis, um, I just put that at the back of my mind. The therapy didn't seem fairly normal. However, the first time he wanted to name one of these parts, like when I imagined myself at age 12, he wanted to name her. I was like, are you kidding? Like, it was so embarrassing. But then again, I was like, okay. I mean, I guess does it, is it that big of a deal? But then he named all the rest, called me at home to tell me names, called me at work to tell me names. I realized I did sense something was up with his interest in these young parts and his question to me about, well, were, are there any babies? Do you picture any babies? And I was like, I can't hardly remember myself past the age of three. No. And how he'd always want them to be wearing pink. And I remember I said, uh, yeah, I'm a tomboy. We don't wear pink. Like, (laughs) but I thought, I mean, I did recognize all those things, but my brain could have never fathomed the level of sickness that it was. But when I got out and I asked the other victim, I said, I, what was all of that about? And 
she's filled in the puzzle pieces for me. I knew something was up with that. It's yeah, I'm sure that she was able to answer some of those questions for you because she'd been going through it for so long. She knew exactly what the progression was. There was a passage where you said that he told you the adult part of my heart loves you like a father, the teenage part in a romantic way, and the child part wishes you were my mom. And you wrote, I handled it like I handled everything else. I tried to justify it, to minimize it, to make sense out of it. I blame myself for even having a problem with it and assumed my discomfort stemmed from something defective in me. And I think that's kind of like the overall arching thing is that you so badly want to get better and you think that you are so, that the problem is completely within you that you're pushing away all of those radar detectors that your body's putting off because, you know, you want it to be right. Right. Like you want it to be what it is supposed to be. Yeah. That's a huge part of it is I hope that I am misinterpreting this. I I would rather, you know, see that maybe he's a little weird or a little out there than that something sinister is happening. And, you know, you feel like you're, you feel so attached that you need it to be okay. And I, you know, this kind of comforted me when I got out, I thought, you know, I used to kind of hate myself for being so naive, but you know what? I'm really okay with not having a sociopathic brain. (laughs) I'm really, I'm really okay that I didn't see any of that coming because, you know, when you're an empathic person and you give people the benefit of the doubt and you're not able to think like a sociopath, because it is, I am telling you, it is mind boggling to come face to face with somebody and see in their eyes and in their actions, they absolutely regard you as trash. You are absolutely disposable. You mean nothing. I can't relate to that. So, so I filtered everything through my lens, which was more generous and, you know, I had a similar conversation with someone who was having a conversation with their therapist and they were like, the therapist is like, stop, you have to understand you have empathy. They don't have empathy and you're never going to understand what they're doing, what they're saying, because you, you can't like, that doesn't click to you. It doesn't click to a normal person. And that's a really, a very healthy way. I think of looking at it. And I want to touch you on something that you um, put in the book, which I think is so powerful that you had these rules that you had adopted throughout your life that helped you explain these things away to yourself. And it was, it really was so how powerful, how you interspersed them through the um, description of his grooming, because then it, I think it helps the reader understand a little bit more why you would put up with it, so to speak. But when did you realize you had these rules? Was it actually something that you're writing down or is it as you're looking back on things, you're, I mean, cause it's incredible self-growth and self-awareness. Yeah, no, I did not know I had those rules. I did. I knew that I was hard on myself, but I had no idea to the degree that I ha- that I was hard on myself. So as I'm going through this experience with with the doctor and it, it was weird. And I write the book this way. It's kind of like part of me is observing how I'm interacting, how I'm minimizing things or rationalizing things, how he's treating me and how I'm acting and feeling. And, and I'm kind of shocked and horrified by it. Like part of me is a very small voice, you know, is saying like, how is this okay with you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it was in retrospect, as I'm writing the book that I'm, I'm able to write out, put into words, what I was thinking and feeling. And then I was horrified when I read them and I, and they're written to sound ludicrous because it is crazy. What a lot of us are walking around accepting about ourselves. You know, they're, they're meant to sound that way because they're meant as a, to be a wake up call to myself and to anybody that's reading it. That is essentially what you're saying to yourself. It is a hundred percent is, but of course you're not thinking that as you're going through life, you're just living life. 
and right. you're and, trying and, to get better. Yeah. And you're more just puzzled, like by it and you kind of brush it off. But when you really look at it, it's quite frightening. Fortunately, you come into contact with someone like you said, he is, he's evil. Someone so evil that he would prey upon you and in the, the layers of predatory behavior here, because it wasn't just as your therapist, it was spiritually, emotionally, and eventually sexually, which we'll get into here in a minute. And so his level of depravity is so far beyond, I think most of the things that I've even seen, which is a lot, unfortunately, I know that was the writing the book, a cathartic process for you. Do you think it was helpful for you to kind of go back through all of it and put pen to paper? Support for Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. Oh, yes. I wrote the book because I couldn't forgive myself because I wanted, I couldn't understand it. I'm really big on that. Like, I don't understand this. Therefore, I do not forgive you until I can make sense of it. And I just needed to see it and I needed to link it all together and weave it together. So it was really written for that reason. It was never like, oh, I'm going to write a book. It was just what just happened. Like, how can I? do something so out of my character and do something that I don't want to do for someone who I even sense is hurting me. Mm -hmm. How can I do that? And how am I so attached to someone who I think is hurting me? So it was just baffling. So yes, it was helpful in my understanding and in my ability to heal. Well, I strongly, we'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute, but I strongly encourage anyone listening to read the book because I think it's very powerful. And I think those rules especially will hit home with a lot of people who maybe don't, haven't reached that point in their journey where they realize that, you know, it may not be the same ones, but I can guarantee you they're going to be at least some that are very similar because that is so many people go through and such a hard process to leave those behind and start anew and which you did and you continue to do, I think, but in terms of the doctor. So at some point in time it became physical and it, again, it was incremental. It was fairly benign things at first, but eventually did culminate in actual sexual assault. Yeah. And we'll see, I started seeing in a year and a month after I started seeing him was when he just blatantly assaults me kind of out of nowhere. I mean, I didn't see it coming and And I just start sobbing and telling him, I, I can't believe you would do this to me. And I, I can't survive this. And, and so there was, you know, no confusion on my part about it. The sad thing was that I thought I can't tell my husband, I, I wanted to tell him so bad, but I thought he would be like, well, question me like, well, but why was he sitting next to you? And it felt yeah. like, because I liked that. And I liked the fatherly nurturing, which meant that something was wrong with me. Um, I'm too embarrassed to say what happened because if I hadn't of A, B, and C, then it wouldn't have happened. If I hadn't have liked that he sat next to me, if I had, and I didn't ask him to sit next to me, he weaseled his way over there, but I liked it once it happened. So therefore I felt like I was partly responsible. And if I hadn't been so naive and so needy and have so many issues, then I wouldn't have been in a position where he could have assaulted me. So I just didn't want to tell. And so and I do finally, though, I reach out to my mentor and what, like dearest friend, she was the pastor's wife. And she, so obviously she knew the doctor well, she knew me well, and she took his side. And I was so 
crushed by that, that I thought, if she doesn't believe me, no one's going to believe me. I'm not telling anybody. I'm just going to have to fix this myself. Well, I couldn't fix it myself. And I was in so much pain and trauma. I had no one to turn to except for the abuser. Mm-hmm. And he's the only one that at least understood the situation that I was in, which was really weird. I know. And, you know, I didn't just go running back. He, he pretended, you know, he mustered up a fake tear and mustered up a fake apology. My friend said he probably squirted that tear on his face with a water bottle or something. (laughs) (laughs) But of course I melted and thought, Mm -hmm. see, he didn't mean to do this. It was an accident. He's troubled too, right? He acted like he had these own things that he was working with and that he, you were the only person he could turn to as well. Right. That was were these two broken souls. And, and he, he was trying to show me safe nurturing, but he got tripped up and see, it's partly my fault because I shouldn't have needed those things. And I should have been like, sit on your side of the office or, you know, whatever. So I end up going back and that was May. So then I was there probably another five weeks and the last two weeks were purely sexual. And me crying at the beginning of every session saying, can we please stop? Can we please stop? And this is hurting me. And, and then, you know, me feeling like it was the weirdest feeling like that I could be so attached to him that I would be willing to make this kind of sacrifice mm-hmm. of my morals and everything until I could fix it and get it back. I, I, I was telling God, like, he'll stop when he realizes how much he's hurting me, when he really gets that he's going to stop. And then it can just, because of course I thought it was good until it was bad, but it was bad from the beginning. I didn't see that though. I thought it was okay. And then all of a sudden at the end, it was bad. So yeah, I just, it was just, it's just something that even now I lived it. It's hard for me to wrap my brain around it. Sure. Uh, that's why I needed to write it out and see it because it's kind of baffling that you can kind of be that addicted to mm-hmm. the connection that you feel. And of course, it's all a false sense of connection. But they, I think it's so powerful because predators seek out the voids in their victims mm-hmm. and their deep seated childhood, long standing needs that we, maybe we don't even know we have. Well, they start to be filled and it feels so good that you just, you just can't walk away from that. It's just like, where have you been all my life? Like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. Well, it's all a trick. And, but you don't, you know, you don't know that. You don't know that. And, you know, thank God you even know it now. Cause I think some people, they struggle with it for the rest of their lives and they don't really face it. And it's misery, it's pure misery. And truly you did nothing wrong, but it's hard to wrap your mind around that at the time. And you think it's all your fault, but really they are just very, very, very good at exactly what you said, honing in on exactly what it is that you need and filling that void for you. And then once that happens, they, they can do whatever they want. Yeah, pretty much. And we put up with things that we never thought we'd put up with, but eventually you did report him. I know that you went through, fortunately, it sounded like your friend's husband, the pastor didn't react the way that she reacted when you disclosed to him what had gone on. And that kind of started everything eventually, fortunately, getting his medical license revoked and he left the church. But it wasn't just, you know, all sunshine and candy because people dragged you through the mud when it happened. Do you, do you live in a small town? Yes. I thought when I was, I'm from a small, I live in Indianapolis now, but I'm from a very small town. And I was like, oh, this is so small town. And, and I want to read another passage. And I'm sorry, I know I've read a bunch of passages from your book, but they're so good that yeah, I think I really good at pinpointing stuff. And this is so powerful. 
People were unable to cope with the dichotomy the doctor presented them with. Was he a sweet Christian elder or was he a sexual predator? Most people could not fathom that the two could coexist or that one might be the front for the other. It was far too scary, far too threatening. So they would dismiss it immediately. So poignant. So, so, so true. That's something that we would have to deal with, you know, in jury trials for prosecutions for sexual assaults, especially for someone who is such a successful groomer because perpetrators don't just groom their victims. They groom everyone around them because they, that's, that's the exact thing that they want. They want for people to be like, there's no way, not that guy. He couldn't be, no, he's someone who does this just could never be a person who did that. And what people don't understand is that they can be both of those things, you know, and maybe he did do good in the community. He probably did as his front, as the sweet Christian elder, he probably did do some good. That doesn't mean he didn't do all of this too. And people cannot seem to wrap their minds around that. I know. And I feel like the more severe the predator, the bigger their fan base. Yeah. Because you have to have one for the other to work. Mm -hmm. Because you wouldn't have gotten away with it for so long, right? Right. And I was just giving a talk and I say, I'm trying to think serial predators need their loyal fan base to be successful. And they count on two things. If anything leaks out, their fans will go to bat for them and victims will be vilified. Mm -hmm. So they, they get that established first um, and then they can proceed on. And, and, you know, it was so sad. He, also used his psychiatry against his victims. He told another victim that I spoke with, you can go ahead and try to tell, but people aren't going to believe a psychiatric patient over a doctor. And I'm best friends with the DA. So go ahead and try to tell. All and of he the- was mm-hmm. good friends with the DA. But I mean, yeah, and I, that's what enraged me. I, I demanded, you know, it's a small town. And so he was good friends with two of my doctors. Mm-hmm. Like my, my physician that I saw my for years, and I demanded that they tell me what I was, what he said about me. And they said that he said that I was delusional and that I'd imagined it all. And I thought, how dare you, you know, take advantage of people. What if I had been more mentally ill? How dare you take advantage of people and play the mental illness mm-hmm. card? Oh my gosh. It just fueled me so much. And that's why I speak out because you're almost, you're just a sitting duck in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so thankful that you do because it's a continuous trope that we see. Um, You know, anybody can be a victim, anyone, but certainly we often see perpetrators targeting people who they think that no one will believe because maybe they do have, even if it's just depression or in in depression, you know, is so common. Almost everyone has had dealt with depression at some point in time in their lives, but you're right. The more like serious someone's mental illness is, the less likely anybody else is to believe them. Yeah. And what was, I feel like it's a whole secondary trauma going through what you have to go through with your church community, because you, you know, your church community was very important to you. And I can't imagine what it felt like, because I'm sure that there were whispers and stares and a bunch of crap talking about you behind your back. Yeah. The other victim that came forward, came forward because somebody after church went up to her and said, did you hear that girl that turned in this doctor has done this to tons of doctors, which is of course, a lie. And, you know, it's ironic because I have never stood up for myself until now, but she just snapped and said, well, I don't know that girl, but I can tell you that what he did to her, he did to me. So you can go back to your source and tell him to stop spreading lies. And, but here's the thing, you know, yes, my pastor asked him to step down as elder and then that's it. The end, the, the church gets it aside. The doctor and his wife had been there for 15, 20 years. I've been there for two People didn't even really hardly know me, you know, so they got whatever version I still to this day don't know. And it's so painful. I go to the grocery store. I have no idea who knows what version. 
it's more likely they have the doctor's version. And, you know, some people, some doctors here in town believed me, but, you know, I do still know that there's some out there that think that he just hung the moon and he is just God's greatest gift. And anyway, so yes, it was very painful. And it started out, you know, my pastor saying like, he has to step down as elder. And I know you're not the only victim. Like, I believe you. And I know you're not the only victim, but then it became, you know, damage control. And we were two sinners in need of help. And and we just want to get you both the help that you need. And I told my pastor, if you can't speak to me, like I am your own daughter, do not speak to me about this again. And he didn't, but yeah, you have to slink out of there. You you have to go out of there with the walk of shame because such truth doesn't get told. Even I feel like even if like if a medical board investigation or an outside investigation is done, just report those facts. That's all Mm -hmm. you have to report. And then people can still take the abuser side. Mm -hmm. They still will. Yes. But the the ones that don't know, they deserve to make an educated decision, but we don't get that benefit as a victim. We just have to move on and you feel uncomfortable anywhere you go and any new church you go to, it's just the stigma never really leaves. It's almost like the scarlet letter, even though you did not participate in an affair, which is how they're equating it. That's not what happened. You were victimized. And I loved that the investigators for the medical board were so great and did such a good job. And it sounds like they were definitely trauma informed in the way that they questioned you about what happened. But I love that they, you know, put it, I can't remember which one of the gentlemen did it, but they put it in black and white. You did not do anything wrong here. It was his response. Even if, even if what he said was true and like, say that you, you wanted to have some sort of relationship like that, the onus is on him to make sure that doesn't happen, period. And obviously this is way beyond anything like that. His level of depravity is really unparalleled, but I was, you know, glad to see that. That, that, That's a good segue into my next point. Can you share what did people do that, you know, was the right thing and helped? And then what did people do that was the wrong thing and actually further harmed you? And I mean, both the professionals and also, you know, loved ones and community members. Well, the first two attorneys I contacted said, well, why didn't you just leave? And I felt, I mean, it's just a huge amount of trauma that, that, that provides. And then you start to hate yourself again and start to question yourself. And you think I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask for help anymore. This I'm just done. No one believes you. But you know, then when I finally did get an informed attorney, it was so wonderful having someone listen to me that is listening as I totally get it. I hear you. This is so wrong. And they don't ask those questions. I had a a professional psychologist who does what's it called when they're the when they sit in on trial and they're the like expert like oh yeah like an expert witness or a jury consultant yeah, that's what he does for these types of cases and he said he asked me if I had shared with my husband I said yeah I told him everything and he said well that's really unfortunate because the first thing I do is sit when this happens is sit the couple down and inform the other spouse that your spouse was a victim of a crime a felony do victims of crimes owe explanations for what happened to them? No, we, we all would laugh at that. No, of course we wouldn't expect that as someone, but that's what gets expected of adult victims, mm-hmm. you know, and as far as other people, you know, just people, well-wishing people, I, I guess what's most helpful is just people who listen and will at least relate to the pain that you feel. I speak a lot about, I say, you know, please don't question victims and expect victims to educate you on this kind of abuse. It's not their job. Um, mm-hmm. And please don't ask them, why didn't you just leave? I feel like that's the single most shaming thing you can ask a victim, even if you're curious and it's fine. Um, but believe me, 
we're struggling with that question ourselves and we hate ourselves for not being able to find a suitable answer. So we just don't need to hear that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that, I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. I've been told that by multiple of our clients that who had spoken with other attorneys first, that they had um, been asked or things had been said to them. There were at best, you know, offensive and at worst re-traumatizing and, so we, our whole team at my firm is trauma-informed, which is not normal, but I think is it, it goes a long way. And, it, and, and frankly, you shouldn't be, no lawyer or anyone else should be doing this kind of work and working with survivors of sexual assault who hasn't been trained in those things. Because even just like you said, even if you are well-meaning and you, you're coming from a positive place and you're not trying to do that, you will say something that is absolutely judgmental if you don't know how not to. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but... No. No, it does. Yeah. And oh my gosh, the amount of disdain I heard. And it was a female attorney and her voice was just like, so like, it just made me feel really small. That was almost the end of my journey. I was almost like, I'm done with attorneys. Yeah. I'm just done. But then of course I did find one wonderful one. Anecdotally is something that we always would say, uh, who do you think are the jurors that are the most, are the hardest on sexual assault victims? And it's women. And I think it goes back to what you said before, and you said this in the book too, is that it challenges people's worldviews. And if they have to believe that the nice grandpa over here who um, volunteers three times a week at the church is someone who can do something like this, then it does. It implodes their entire worldview. And so it goes far beyond, you know, the facts that they're hearing of that case. But you know what? Sorry about you. This is the way the world works and people just don't. And that's, I mean, again, that's why you do what you do. That's why I do what I do is to continue to try to educate people. Is there anything else that you want to share with everyone in terms of advice or anything part of your message? And please do tell everyone the title of your book and where they can find it. Yeah. The title of the book is preyed upon with the A marked out and an E written in breaking free from therapist abuse. And you can get it on my website or you can get the paperback or the ebook on Amazon. The paperback is also wherever books are sold, but the ebook is exclusively on Amazon. And I like to talk, I like to mention that consent is never possible in a relationship with an imbalance of power because you cannot say yes if you cannot also say no. Mm -hmm. I also just like to remind adult victims that that what happened to them was not their fault and that they're not alone because there are so, so, so many of us out there. It's hard for us to connect. Um, and find each other. But um, I thought I was the only one on the planet when it happened to me. And now I know this is a really common occurrence. And I think, I think that's, that's the main thing. Just like you said earlier, victims rattle our sense of security and we don't like that. And we also like to think that our judgment is correct. So if somebody that we've always loved and respected turns out to be a serial predator, it's frightening to admit that you didn't catch it. Yeah. And that's why people blame victims, but we, you know, we've just got to understand that, you know, like you said, they groom the community first. And have we not said that about every single predator that we've heard on TV? Do we not hear everyone saying what a wonderful person they are? I mean, it's like every one of them, they are all amazingly kind, generous, smart people. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. But that's all. I mean, I could go on and on, but those are I know. You're absolutely right. And we all definitely need to do better. Okay. So we end every show with the same three questions. What first question, what does courage mean to you? Courage means to me 
to proceed forward even when you're afraid. It means do it anyway. Yep. Perfect. Uh, number two, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Probably, I love when I learned the acronym HALT. It's hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are danger zones for us for making decisions, making poor choices, especially with parenting and things like that. And, and so I've always kind of, that always kind of sticks in my head. And I kind of look like when I'm behaving in a certain way and I'm kind of like, okay, one of these things is probably going on. It's like kind of a red flag to address whatever's happening. I've never heard that. And that's really good. Cause I'm one of those people who gets hangry for sure. So <laughs> I know, I know my son and I always talk about our anger, uh, but halt is so good because most of the time you can pin it back to one of those four things. <laughs> Absolutely. That's really powerful. And last question. What is one question that you wish more people would ask you? I wish that more people from my church community, the one where I was taken advantage of would ask me, what can we do to make you feel more safe? What can we do to bring you back? Is there anything that we could do that you would feel understood and, and safe again in this community? Because I didn't get, not one person asked me that, you know, not even my pastor, you know, or his wife, and maybe they assumed I didn't want to come back, but I mean, I had to lose all, I had to lose my entire support system really in one swoop. So yes, I would love for someone to say, you know, I don't know, just want to understand, I guess, you know, what does it feel like to be in your shoes? Like, is there anything we can do to make that better? I think that is so important. And I hope that any church community members who are listening really take heart to that. And I I know that I think sometimes it may seem like we're really going after churches on this podcast and we're not, it's just unfortunately a prolific problem because it's so easy for predators to target people in church communities. And so you know, and I think a lot of people, even the ones who do have the best intentions can really take heed of that. And that actually makes me think of one other question I didn't ask you. Were you guys able to find, were you and your family able to find another church community to be a part of, or are you still kind of on the search for that? You know, nothing ever feels like it's the same, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we did end up attending. We tried two other churches and we attended one for quite a while. Then COVID hit and, and we, we have been out of church, but I realized that it isn't COVID for me. It's that I don't want to go back. I make excuses. Like I'm in a small town. There's not a lot of choices here, mm-hmm. but I think it's partly just the hurt and trauma and, and, you know, partly COVID and partly that, that it is a smaller town, but no, I don't know that I ever want to return to church. Mm-hmm. There's definitely things I miss about it, but I don't know. I just don't know that I can feel safe there. But it's kind of silly because, you know, we can't really feel, can we feel safe anywhere really? So I don't, I don't know what the issue is, but yeah, yes and no, we did find somewhere else to worship and, um, but I haven't. I just wonder, cause it, you know, it's just a, a part of the journey. And I think it's a good reminder that we're all still on the journey. It doesn't just end the day that, you know, his medical license gets revoked or someone gets prosecuted that these things you know, pop up in different areas of the life. And that this is one of the big areas of your life that is still affected by it. And, you know, it's just, it, it continues to be part of the journey. Yeah. I mean, I still feel a bit of loneliness that although I have close friends, I mean, you don't want to bother people with this issue too many times and, and like, you don't want to really revisit it because they don't really know how to handle it anyway, but it, it is a little bit of a lonely walk, I guess. Yep. It sure is. Amy, thank you so much for coming on today. I think you're an incredible person 
And yeah, I mean, just great talk. And your book is phenomenal. It is um, very moving. You did such a wonderful job of describing what it's like to be targeted as an adult by a position of power. We talk a lot about the red flags to work out to look out for for child predators. And I don't think we spend nearly enough time talking about how to spot these predators. And they are amidst us, especially in professions such as that, where it's so easy to do that. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing to try to spread awareness to others. And thank you for what you do. We need more trauma-informed attorneys. Oh, I appreciate but it. Victims do not need to be re-traumatized by the person they're reaching out to to help, help them seek justice. Couldn't agree more. And as always, thank you to our listeners for listening. Submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.